Welcome to Subversity.、Uh, we're talking with Matthew Torn, who is the、um, director of a fascinating、uh, new documentary on Hong Kong protesters、uh, called "Lessons、uh, in Descent." Yeah, and、uh, great.、Uh, maybe you could tell our listeners、uh, why you、uh, did this film. Um, well, I I got interested in Hong Kong politics、uh, when I moved to Hong Kong in 2003, in the middle of the SARS pandemic and the Article 23 controversy, and that interest just sort of stayed with me. It seemed that、uh, the whole system was so unfair, and、um, you know that what Martin Lee and the other democracy campaigners at the time were asking for. Seemed incredibly reasonable,、uh, and I guess there's a certain point pretty ashamed of the British government.、Um, well, I've come to expect that, and、um, I just, you know, I became, I, I stayed interested in it even after going back to London, and I ended up doing a master's degree at Oxford、uh, on Hong Kong's democracy movement and and the the room or the chances for increased democracy in Hong Kong. And、uh, after doing that, I thought, well, maybe I'll do a PhD、um, or write a book. But it dawned on me that writing a book or doing a PhD, essentially, the thesis would just sit on a library in Oxford, getting gathering dust, and you know, would be read by almost nobody.、Um, I mean, there are very few academics really working in the field of Hong Kong politics. You know, sort of half a dozen. Uh, a dozen at a push. So,、uh, and I, I wanted to affect the debate. I think you know, if you just write something and it just sat there and no one's reading it, then it's not really achieving anything.、Um, so I wanted to try and speak to the wider general public, and making a film was kind of the easiest way of doing that.、Um, in that, you know, people can go watch the film, and an hour and a half later, they've, you know, they've. They've seen what you had to say. It's kind of it's not. It doesn't require lots of effort from the viewer. You know, you sit there for an hour and a half as opposed to reading a book, which requires much more effort and time. And、um, you know, movies can have quite an emotional impact. So that was the plan. And、uh, but when I went to Hong Kong specifically to try and make this film, I kind of realised that actually a load of、um, talking head interviews with sort of senior Hong Kong. Democratic politicians probably not going to be massively interesting,、um, and you know it was just going to be a turnoff for the general Hong Kong public. So I sort of realised that actually there was young activists who were fighting for democracy and protesting who were already far more interesting、um, back in 2011. So I decided to follow them and see what happens. And you know I knew that 2012 was going to be a year where. Something was going to happen. You know, there was a legco election, there was the、um, chief executive election, and there was going to be the handover of power in mainland China at the end of the year. So you knew that 2012 something would happen, but obviously I didn't know what would happen or exactly, you know, what a major role Joshua Wong would play in that. So it was a lot of luck, <laughs> I guess,、yeah. as well. How did you、uh, build rapport with the、uh, two、uh, individuals that you've featured in your film? Uh, you know, I think it's a question of you can't just go and start filming straight away. I think you <laughs>、yeah. you can see that with some documentaries where they've literally turned up and then the next day started filming. You need to spend time building up relationship with these people,、um, and I think 
you know, they were, I, I know that both of them were a little bit suspicious at the beginning because I think they thought, oh, there's another media person, you know, who's going to do some kind of hatchet job on them, which I think happens so often where, you know, the interviewer, you know, my experience of Hong Kong journalists is actually the journalists themselves are not bad at all, but something happens between them writing their story and mm. it getting published yeah. where it just gets hacked to pieces and it, it almost is not even uh, true anymore. So I think they were a little bit suspicious that, you know, we would just take some sound bites and just kind of stitch them up. Um, but I think after a while of spending time with them and they started to realize what my, you know, what we were trying to do and, you know, um, that we weren't, we didn't have money from the BBC or anyone, or any other one else yeah. to be like that matter and that we weren't going to do a traditional RTHK documentary. Um, and that then they started, you know, they were much more interested. Um, and also I think, you know, you have to have a level of knowledge. So if you turn up asking sort of really basic questions, uh, which kind of, you know, you, at the end of the day, their attitude is you should already know that before you come talking to us. And if you, if you do that, then you don't really gain any respect from them. But if you have a level of knowledge already and are asking them on their views on things, then they're kind of quite interested. They're quite willing to tell you. So I think you have to just do your research before you start out. And that's how you build the rapport with them. Did you speak in English with them? Yeah. The, you know, so the film is entirely in Cantonese, but, um, it was, their English was better than my Cantonese. So <laughs> it was easier to, you know, have extensive chats and, you know, we just go for dinner or go to Cha Chang Tang and just have, mm-hmm something to drink or something to eat and talk about whatever was going on and, you know, spend time with them. You know, I think you have to sort of don't make it too formal, just relax and, you know, let their personalities come out. Um, and so we talk over in English and things. And then when we're actually doing the sort of interviews for the film, um, you know, we conduct those in Cantonese, but I had already, you know, I only knew pretty much where, what was going to be said and where it was going to go because we'd, we'd already discussed it at length in English beforehand. I mean, obviously, the best case scenario would be for me to really fluently speak Cantonese, but, um, you know, there's an awful lot of languages around the world. And, um, you know, if I, I whilst I would quite like to learn Cantonese properly, it's at the same time, I don't know what, what the next film Although the next film is probably in Hong Kong, I don't know where it would be after that. So you know, there's a lot of documentary filmmakers who work all around the world. Um, right. There's a famous documentary filmmaker, Lucy Walker, who's made films in Brazil, US, uh, Tibet, Japan, and she's English, so she doesn't speak all of those languages. Sure. So it's um, it's actually not not that unusual to have a director who doesn't speak the language of the of the of the film. Was it, um, why, why did it take so long to come out? Was it because you had to get the uh, dialogue translated or subtitled? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it just took so long because we started off thinking we were doing one thing. You know, we thought we were making an intimate character portrait of these two young democracy activists who came from the same neighborhood, um, had a very, very similar backgrounds, but were quite different in personality. And so we started off doing that. And then obviously as the film, as the events unfold, we kind of realized that actually that's not what, how this film was going to play out. Uh, so having to sort of change your plans meant that a lot of what we'd sort of mapped out and how we thought things would work out had to be scrapped and started again. And yeah, certainly having to 
read all the transcripts and get all that stuff translated it took time but um i had a cantonese speaking editor mm. um which i felt that that was the best way of trying to speed things up and make sure it was done properly but at the same time you know we had over 200 hours of footage so it took like five weeks just to sit there and watch all of the footage from end to end um it, it you know it wasn't it was a mammoth task, so that's why it takes a long time to do it. You know, I'm a librarian and a kind of an archivist, and I've been doing a web archiving of the democracy, uh, uh, the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong, uh, by which I mean we uh, crawl uh, websites of the different movements, uh, activities, and yeah. save them. And it seems there's a debate in Hong Kong about whether the state or the government there will do any archiving and they seem to have uh, washed their hands of it um, locally. Um, well, I mean, I can't imagine that there's any reason for the government to archive this. I mean, I think they'd kind of wish it wouldn't, it didn't yeah, happen. But the, <laughs> but the university should do it. And, you know, but they are also subject to some constraint. And, yeah. I think there's a lot of yeah. pressure on the universities at the moment in Hong Kong. Right. So I, I think if, if, so my argument, I gave a talk on this in Macau in uh, December and, the people from Hong Kong and um, China were sitting in the audience, head librarians, mm. um, uh, all sorts of uh, universities in uh, Hong Kong, all the universities in Hong Kong and uh, all the representatives and in uh, Pacific Rim, actually. And I argued that it's kind of an insurance policy. If somebody outside, you know, outside Hong Kong archives it, then you can say, oh, it's already archived. Maybe we can also do our bit. It's not that, you know... Uh, not such a strange thing to web archive. So wh what would you do with the outtakes from your film, the, the footage that you didn't use? Yeah, so I tried to edit it down. So we made, with the DVD, we've made a second disc on the DVD, which has over four hours of oh, features. So wow. that has uh, a lot of deleted scenes that we just cut because whilst they were interesting, they kind of moved the the story away or they they weren't pushing the story forward and there was a lot of pressure on us to get the story the film down to sort of 90 minutes um and then there's a lot of extended interviews so you know a lot of the interviews that we filmed were like two hours or more long oh. and so we cut those down to like 10 minutes so you kind of get the essence of them but they're you know they're um you know you don't have to be necessarily uh, a student of the of the topic to find them interesting. There's still, there's still a lot there that's interesting and they're kind of in lengths now, which are, um, easily, um, accessible. But, uh, also talking about, um, you know, maybe giving all of the original rushes to the University of Toronto's Canada, Hong Kong library, because I think that for people who, you know, for students or professors for that matter, who want to go and have some primary evidence. So this is, you know, extensive interviews with the people who were, you know, were key, some of the key people participating in these protests. Right. And as, as they occurred, uh, I can imagine that that could be quite interesting to, to somebody actually writing you know, who's actually studying that, but not to the general public. So, um, you know, we try and make the DVD interesting for the general public who want to know a little bit more, mm -hmm. and then, you know, try and hand over all this extensive footage to the, the University of Toronto's library. Yeah, I was just there uh, a few months ago, and it's really a nice space. They've moved into nice quarters. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, how about the, uh, in terms of uh, what you talked about, I was wondering... 
right now there's this uh, China has this uh, kind of anti-Western uh, phase, and uh, and so Joshua also was a target of some of this, uh, saying that he was receiving funding from uh, CIA or USAID or whatever. And, yeah. Um, what? How did he react to all this? Oh, well, he, how he reacted to the film? No, to uh, all the to all this. Uh, allegations about receiving Western funding. I mean, I think he just shrugged them off as kind of ridiculous because, you know, that's what it is. I mean, uh, you know, C.Y. Leung said during the middle of the Umbrella Movement that they had evidence that foreign oh, right. forces were doing this. Well, give us the evidence and present it. But he won't. And that just shows you that they don't have the evidence. Um, you know, why would you say you have evidence of it but then not allow anyone to see it? Um, it I, I think... Um, it plays to those people who want to believe that this is all foreigners um, causing trouble, but don't actually want to use their brains and you know analyze it and look and see where is the evidence. And then for everybody else, who, everyone just finds the whole thing laughable. I think. Um, I mean, certainly Joshua thinks it's a little bit ridiculous. There was some reports that he'd been receiving training and everything from CIA, and it was like, really? Um, I mean. I think you just, if you believe any of that stuff, then, you know, it, it, it's, it's interesting to read the Wenwei Po and the Takang Pao and all these newspapers purely to see how, um, the mindset or how they're thinking, not for evidence or fact-based reporting. Um, it shows you how, you know, China's paranoia is. Uh, I mean, I don't think, you know, for instance, this sort of independence thing that CY Leung brought up with the Hong Kong University undergrad magazine. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, I think that there are, you know, there are some people in Hong Kong who maybe support independence, but I don't think that that's a huge group of people. Um, and the debate was kind of bubbling under the surface. It wasn't really a major, uh, topic of conversation until, CY essentially brought it all up in, in his policy address and started talking about it. Um, you know, and he just <laughs> he kind of made the topic himself, uh, which either is a clever ploy by him, which I wouldn't be surprised, or is something rather foolish. So I don't know. Do you, do you think though that the, um, that uh, asking for democracy or is more, is, is a Western concept, I suppose, huh? And do you think that um, there are forces that believe that it could be, uh, I mean, that America is kind of using this maybe for its own, own purposes, of course. Well, first of all, I don't believe that democracy is a Western, um, idea. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it's a universal thing. Mm, I think okay. if you asked anybody, um, <laughs> you know, would you like to have a choice over who rules you? Whether that goes from primary school kids deciding who's the class president to, um, you know, cavemen, uh, thousands of years ago deciding who <laughs> should be their chief. You know, it, it's a natural human thing to want to have some input into who is, um, you know, making the decisions that you have to abide by. So I don't believe for a moment that democracy is some kind of Western thing. Um, you know, if you look at Japan and you look at South Korea and you look at Taiwan, you know, these are countries which are um, you know, functioning democracies uh, and they're not Western countries. Uh, and, you know, same with, you know, for instance, Indonesia is becoming an increasingly uh, more democratic country uh, and, you know, 
Uh, it's yeah. it's not not Western. It's not even it's a Muslim country as well. So I I fundamentally reject this concept that it's kind of a Western thing. And if anything, it just again shows the sort of ridiculousness of the Communist Party because at the end of the day. Who came up with communism? That was a Western idea, if anything, because it came from Marx. Right. And Karl Marx, you know, was a German living in London. So, <laughs> and the, the, sort of this idea that uh, Western influence is doing things and trying to undermine Hong Kong government or Chinese government, well, you know, I think that's just their paranoia. Because if you look at uh, the help that the Chinese Communist Party had from the Russians back in the um, before they took power in mainland China, you know, there was significant assistance. So it's just double standards. I find the whole thing, um, you know, rather, <laughs> rather amusing, really. You know, uh, Jerome Cohn was on campus the other day, and he's a, you know, human rights uh, advocate, a professor at NYU uh, on China. And uh, yeah. he's, he, he was saying that the sunflower movement in Taiwan was the inspiration for Hong Kong and that the students have failed in Hong Kong in contrast to uh, Taiwan where they have succeeded, the yeah. protesters. Do you, do you think Joshua would agree with that? Well, I think it's, I mean, essentially, I would say that both Taiwan and Hong Kong inform each other. Yeah. So I think that the student protesters, Sunflower Movement, gained some... Um, influence from what happened in Hong Kong in 2012. But oh, yeah. certainly the umbrella movement had a lot of, there was a lot of influence from the, the student movement in Taiwan in March of 2013, um, 2014, sorry, uh, the, you know, the, the Sunflower movement. Right. But I think, uh, you know, to say that, they, to compare one as saying that was succeeded and then the other to say it failed kind of misses the point of actually how different the policies are. So for instance, in Taiwan, you know, okay, it's a, still a, a, a fledgling democracy, but essentially they still have elections where um, the KMT uh, can lose power. And we've seen that, you know, Chen Shui-bian was in power before. So it's not a question of the KMT will never lose power. There is an election system where you can change your government. Um, whereas in Hong Kong, that's not the case. Uh, so you're coming up against a quite different adversary. Um, but certainly there is a whole load of things in Hong Kong or reason why the, the movement wasn't successful. I mean, I don't think for a moment that Xi Jinping was just going to wake up one morning and say, <laughs> you know what, I feel like giving Hong Kong democracy, I'm just going to be a nice guy today. I mean, that was never going to happen. So right. they were always up against these massive structural barriers in that they're actually pushing for increased democracy or democracy within a one country, two systems um, system where the government, the central government is an authoritarian government. And so that's not, it's very, very unlikely. Um, and that wasn't the case in Taiwan. So to compare them is a little bit um, disingenuous, I would have said. But at the same time, the students in Hong Kong didn't exactly put themselves in a position where they were having their maximum opportunity to pressure the government um, because divisions between the group the various groups that that ran the whole umbrella movement so you know um the official occupy central with peace and love uh was a very um divided group which you know didn't really um have you know their goals were a little bit murky and then when they said 
nobody under the age of 40 uh, can participate in civil disobedience campaign. Uh, I mean, okay, that was then changed to nobody over under uh, 18. But essentially what they did was alienate all of their key supporters, you know, because the most um, enthusiastic supporters of the civil disobedience campaign were young people. And all of a sudden they were then um, no longer... Uh, felt like they were able to participate or that, that, that they weren't wanted by the official Occupy Central Peace and Love. So you had then scholarism and Hong Kong Federation students as like an alternative leadership. Uh, so as the umbrella movement set out, you had a divided leadership with Hong Kong, uh, Occupy Central Peace and Love, scholarism and Hong Kong Federation students. I mean, that's not to say also there was the civic passion group, um, who, who were doing their thing and lots of other smaller groups who were doing their own thing. But even the students in terms of scholarism and Hong Kong Federation students were hardly united. Um, you know, they, they, they don't exactly, there's no real love lost between them as a, as a group and, you saw that they, they couldn't make up their minds and have a united idea because the, the Federation of Students tried to take the LegCo building, which, you know, at that point was too late to do and there just wasn't enough people and the police were very, very prepared. And so that resulted in quite a, a nasty series of clashes outside the Legislative Council and on the grass outsiders. And then scholarism tried their own tactic of a hunger strike. But the problem with a hunger strike is that they overused in Hong Kong. And, um, you know, we've seen it in the past where people go on hunger strikes and they only last 48 hours or 72 hours. And to be honest, if you're a government official and you can just kind of laugh at that, you don't need to really concern yourself. A hunger strike will only have any power once, um, you know, you've been hospitalized and you're seriously at the point where you might die. And hmm. the, the general media and the general public are, you know, saying, oh my gosh, you know, the government really must not let this happen. Um, and that wasn't, that was never the case in Hong Kong. Joshua's uh, hunger strike was not long enough. Um, and, you know, there was no that public sympathy at that point for it. It's kind of, you know, remember the, the government had done a very good job of uh, getting the media to claim that people weren't no longer supporting this movement. And, you know, people in Hong Kong, they tend to believe the media, even though it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so, yeah. um, so but essentially I, I wouldn't, I would say that to, to describe the sunflower movement as a success and the umbrella movement as a failure, um, you know, it's kind of not really a fair assessment. Certainly the umbrella movement failed in its objective, but the reasons for it are quite different and shouldn't really be compared to what happened in the sunflower movement. What do you think China is afraid of then? I mean, why, why are they so inflexible? Well, you know, uh, at the end of the day, if you have a chief executive who's elected to Hong Kong by the people, he will be uh, accountable to the people and not to the central government. So you have a situation where, um, you know, this chief executive is going to say, to, is, is going to be told by Beijing, we want you to do X, Y, and Z. And he's going to say, I'm not doing it because if I do that, the Hong Kong people won't like it. And therefore I will be voted out at the next chief executive election. And so, you know, I'm not going to do it. And that, that they can't, just can't have that. They need to control. I mean, this is exactly the same reason why London never granted Hong Kong any, any democracy. Because if you imagine you had a governor who was accountable to the people of Hong Kong and not <laughs> accountable to the, the UK government. Yeah. You know, so this is always the problem with colonies. Um, in that 
essentially the sovereign power wants to be able to do what's in the interest of the sovereign power and not what's in the interest of the local population. Uh, and so if you had a, uh, a chief executive or a governor or a leader or whatever name who is, um, who's accountable to the people and is, uh, you know, therefore going to be trying to, to pursue policies which are in the interest of the people rather than the interest of the sovereign power, there's going to be a problem there. Um, so I, I, you know, I think it's highly unlikely. And then, you know, to add to that is obviously the Chinese Communist Party is an authoritarian regime. It's very inflexible. Um, they're obviously incredibly insecure. There's various factional infighting going on within the party itself. Um, so, you know, it's the chances of, of what Hong Kong is asking for are, are very, very slim. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. Um, and certainly I believe that whilst I don't think that the umbrella movement was ever going to, uh, you know, achieve its objective of having a democratically elected chief executive tomorrow, um, certainly if they had had a better plan, better leadership and been able to innovate their protests and actually kept the general public on side for the whole time, then what they could have done is at least extract better concessions. And right now I, I don't think that, you know, Beijing is probably going to um, not grant any concessions and at the very last minute offer like the most minor concessions and everyone in Hong Kong will think it's a lifeline because they'll be like, wow, we managed to get this. This is really great. But actually <laughs> it's, it's nothing at all. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, what we saw in the, the 2010 reform where, you know, it didn't look like there was going to be any reform. And then the Democratic Party secretly negotiated the government and they got their super seats, which they thought were brilliant, but actually, um, are a screening mechanism just in the same way as a chief executive because in those super seats if only the people who run district councils can stand in them then essentially many parties in Hong Kong can't stand um, for for a super seat because they don't have district council election, uh, district councillors uh, so that was a screening mechanism again but uh, the problem was, was that, the, that they were viewed as concessions and they were viewed as a good thing at the time without really understanding the situation and I think that, that exactly the same thing will probably happen later on this year when the government makes a minor minor concession and, and the Democrats go oh wow brilliant this is great um, but actually <laughs> they don't read the small print. In, in your film you focus on the campaign by Joshua Wong and the others on against the national education uh, program uh, and he succeeded in uh, in that effort, uh, well, I think that's, uh, in a way, I, w I wouldn't say succeed. I mean, he, they 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 didn't enact fully; they didn't mandate it, but they said it was voluntary, right? I think yeah. the key thing that one needs to remember between the umbrella movement and the uh, anti-national Article Twenty Three movement is Article Twenty Three and anti-national education were both situations where the government was trying to enact more authoritarian uh, measures, uh, regressive measures, and the people of Hong Kong stood up to push back to the original status quo. So essentially, uh, when the government then shelved Article 23 or made uh, national education optional, the government didn't lose any ground. They just went back to the status quo. Uh -huh. uh, so rather than they didn't make any ground, but they didn't lose any ground. So that was acceptable. Uh, and they would just wait it out. You know, at the end of the day, Deng Xiaoping always said, wait, 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 and do something for China. You know, be patient is kind of always been the, um, the policy of the party. Um, whereas the umbrella movement's quite a different case, quite a different situation in that there was no going back to the status quo that was acceptable to either side. 
you know, um, China is feeling uh, that it, A, China doesn't really want to go down this route of having some kind of um, universal suffrage. It is doing it because uh, it wants to be able to say, hey, we've we've done everything that we promised we would do in the uh, in the joint declaration and the basic law. Um, and it's also desperately trying to find some kind of uh, way of finding a chief executive that has some legitimacy uh, because the chief executives that we've had so far, all three of them have failed in that, in that measure. have been deeply unpopular. Um, and I don't think that the new system that China's offering is actually going to resolve that problem, but that's what they're trying to do. On the other hand, the people themselves actually want more progressive uh, measures. And so they actually want to, um, they're trying to push Beijing to lose ground, as it were. Um, in, if you look at it in terms of progression versus regression towards authoritarianism. Um, so the, here was an opportunity, this was a situation where there was no, um, opportunity for them just to say, oh, okay, well, let's like take the sting out of all of this and just go back to the original status quo and everything will be okay. Um, because both sides were not going to accept the status quo. But for the student protesters to have actually won, or in, I don't like to use the word win, but yeah, yeah. You know, that's a simple phrase, uh, it would have involved the government losing ground and they were never, ever, ever going to do that um, because it just opens a whole Pandora's box of... Uh, what about the rest of Guangdong or Shanghai and all these other places that will want uh, increased um, freedoms uh, in line with what Hong Kong has got? Um, you know, essentially, as far as uh, Beijing is concerned, if you open up to allow Hong Kong to have more meaningful democracy, you're opening up a floodgate and you don't know where it's going to end. And, you know, they just want to keep the system in place because it's benefiting them very well. Yeah, you know, I focus a lot on Joshua Wong in your about in your film, but actually, you your your other uh, figure that you've portrayed, uh, Ma Zai, uh, he is an interesting character because he stands as a counterpart to what uh, Joshua was doing. He offers a critique in a way of uh, his media appearances, and he he is uh, eloquent in his own way, not not in the way uh, Joshua is in public, but. He has a he's a deep thinker, I think. Um, yeah. How, yeah, how do you yeah how do you how do you analyze what uh, Mata's uh, politics and uh, situation in uh, as a result of your film? Well, I, I yeah. think you know Mata's started off as a much more radical person. Um, the Joshua, I think, uh, you know, part of that's down to his personality. He's a different type of character, um, but you know now he's still. Um, doing, you know, he's doing activism, and I guess where Joshua is looking at the sort of big overall battle uh, for increased democracy, Mardai is whilst also doing that is also looking at smaller, perhaps winnable uh, battles in terms of rights for foreign domestic helpers, labour issues, um, you know, minimum wage for um, universal pension, all these sorts of things, which you know are which certainly, you know, would help a lot of people in Hong Kong. Um, you know, so they're all part of the kind of narrative towards increased democracy. But he's also focusing on those on those little things uh, or, or littler issues, as it were. Um, but I think, you know, as a personality, Mardai is, you know, a totally different personality to Joshua. He has much more varied interests um, and... Uh, you know, he's kind of confounds a lot of people's expectations when they think of him and they look at him and they go long hair and he's, he, you know, drops out of school. They, they automatically 
have a a view of what he's like or, or what he must be thinking and actually uh, he's an incredibly well-educated kid who speaks very good English um, and you know has educated himself uh, by reading books and you know learning rather than doing it through the official system of the Hong Kong education system which you know I think we can all kind of agree is not really uh, the greatest way of educating children. Right, definitely. Uh, the group he's in, the Maja is in, is the League for, uh, for Social Democracy. Uh, yeah. That is more a grassroots group. Yeah, I mean, they, uh, you know, yeah, they, they concern themselves with more sort of working class issues, certainly. Uh, but, you know, they're still campaigning for democracy. Um, I, I think that, you know, their view is that democracy is a way of assisting uh, those who currently are completely silenced by the Hong Kong system uh, to to be heard and to try and help those people. You know, there is what you know. The minimum wage in Hong Kong is thirty Hong Kong dollars an hour. But you can't even buy a cup of coffee in Starbucks for that. Mm. Um, you know, so there's an awful lot of people living in poverty in Hong Kong. Uh, there's about three hundred thousand people who earn less than the minimum wage. There is these people who are living in. Um, sort of corrugated iron shacks on the top right. of tenement buildings in Cham Shui Po. There are, um, you know, the average uh, flat now in Hong Kong is only 400 square foot, just absolutely minute. Um, so life is very difficult if you're in if you're in Hong Kong, unless you're a tycoon. And uh, I think you know, Ahmad Jai, he might be a member of the League of Social Democrats, but if you look at what they're asking for. It's not exactly left wing. It's kind of middle of the road. Any sort of northern European country would have, you know, these things would be regarded as centrist rather than left. So um, it's just that Hong Kong is a very right wing policy. So uh, has doing this film, uh, what made you want to continue doing it? Another one in Hong Kong? Well, I think there's just a lot, you know, there's interesting stories. Hong Kong still hasn't, um, haven't exhausted my interest in the place. Right. Uh, I still think it's a, you know, a fascinating place where it provides inspiration. You know, you just walk around the town and you can feel the buzz of the place. Um, I, you know, one of the things I like about Hong Kong is that you can sort of take the temperature of the city quite easily especially if you don't live there all the time you just wander around the streets you can tell if people are tense or angry or the city is and i find that that's pretty uh, inspiring um so uh, and i also just think that the battle on one we need to be thinking for the rest of the world, because uh, essentially, whilst I am pleased that China is becoming a richer uh, country and lots of people being lifted out of poverty, which can only be a good thing, um, at the same time as China becomes a richer, wealthier country, there's also responsibilities that come with that. Um, and you know, one would like to see China become a responsible member of sort of global society. Um, you know, I'm not expecting it to agree with Europe or the US, um, but certainly to engage in debate in the UN and so on and so forth, where, you know, we can all have meaningful things and, you know, we can work together. But right now, that doesn't seem to really be the way China wants to play it. And you're seeing that in, in Hong Kong, where they seem to be wanting to increase um, restrictions on freedom of speech. Uh, you know, it's it's not looking really great in the long term, unfortunately. Um, so 
you know, it'd be very interesting to see how things pan out uh, in, in China in terms of where this wealth is going, because at the moment we're just seeing lots and lots of billionaires who are, um, you know, but there's still an awful lot of people in, in China who are very, very poor and living on less than a dollar a day. And, you know, until the society kind of deals with that, uh, I mean, not to say that any other society has has got it perfect of course no one has but certainly there's a lot of inequality in china um which seems to be breeding um discontent and it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next uh 10 20 30 years the uh you know currently there's this uh, debate uh, in guangzhou right uh, people are getting upset at hong kong and threatening to cut off the water supply and electricity uh because of the reaction in some by some people in hong kong against uh people from China going to Hong Kong to buy goods for resale and stuff yeah. and, the, and the tourists coming in. Uh, but do you think of uh, China has, do you think that China has become the new colonial masters of Hong Kong replacing Britain? Yeah, well, certainly. Hong Kong is still a colony. It's just has a different colonial master. That's why I said earlier the exact same reasons why London couldn't grant democracy and a universal suffrage elected um, governor is exactly the same reasons why China can't do the same. Um, so certainly I think, you know, one needs to see Hong Kong as just a colony of, of China now. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of the, uh, the protests that are happening in Hong Kong, we've seen them in Yunlong and Tunmun and Sha Tin New Plaza not so long ago where people are protesting against uh, parallel traders. I mean, A, I think parallel traders is kind of a nice word for what they are, which is smugglers. You know, they are essentially breaking the law by buying things in Hong Kong, illegally importing them into uh, China and then selling them on the black market. At the same time, I feel very sorry for mainland people who, you know, if you're sick, you want to go to the pharmacy and you want to buy medicine you know is genuine and not adulterated and is going to help you get better. And it must be incredibly scary for that not to be the case and for you to worry about where is this medicine come and what actually is in it. And uh, therefore, I completely understand the desire to um, you know, buy things from Hong Kong. But I think uh, you know, it needs to be looked at because essentially this is not shouldn't really be a Hong Kong problem. This is actually a mainland problem. And the central government should be looking at trying to, um, you know, really tackle this abuse of uh, IP and adulteration of, of medicines and, and food and things. Because if that was uh, resolved and that people in China could buy food and buy medicine in, in mainland China with confidence, then there wouldn't be need this whole parallel, parallel trader or smugglers uh, would would not exist. Right. They're just they're just meeting a demand. Um, but certainly, if you're in Hong Kong and you know you take the old KM, um, KCR, or actually now it's the MCR, um, the old line up to um, the border with Shenzhen, then you know you will see that there are huge amounts of uh, mainlanders who are coming in with suitcases, buying medicine, milk powder, and so on and so forth, and then just taking it across the border. Uh, and whilst I, you know, I'm not necessarily sure that I think that the protests that have been happening in Hong Kong are the, the best way of tackling that situation, uh, I think that certainly there is a genuine grievance there that does need to be uh, thought out. And I don't think this is just general hatred for mainlanders. You know, it's, <laughs> um, you know, it's all a bit, the problem with the languages is very, very loaded. So yeah. whilst one might be uh, upset that these parallel traders or smugglers are causing inconvenience to their lives and making it hard for them to be able to buy 
products in Hong Kong because they're all being bought up and shipped to mainland. Uh, at the same time, uh, taking it out or blaming all mainlanders is certainly not the you know the way forward because you know it's 1.3 billion mainlanders and I'm sure that more than 99% of them are you know wonderful human beings, um, just like you get in Hong Kong. Uh, sure. Certainly, I know lots of mainland people and they're they're very nice. Uh, in terms of uh, the reaction of the countries where you have shown the film, uh, you, you said something at the um, uh, in Irvine when, uh, or maybe when I was talking to you that that in that the Britain doesn't seem to care about Hong Kong anymore. People in Britain that much uh, to generalize, um, but that you have better reception for the film somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, Britain. You got to look at it in that there was. You know, back in the 1990s, there was two factions of the Conservative Party. One who, you know, the Chris Patton faction, who felt that uh, we should try to do um, something for Hong Kong. We probably left it too late, but you know, we should at least try to. You know, there was something morally wrong about handing over seven million people to uh, mail to the communist authorities in China without any kind of protections. Um, and then there was the other group of people who were sort of the Michael Heseltine group, who were basically business leaders who were just saying, "Well, look, you know, um, Hong Kong is not our problem anymore." But, you know, by doing anything which might annoy the leaders in Beijing, it's going to affect our ability to trade. And why would we want to do that? Because, you know, at the end of the day, we want to just make money. Um, and I think, you know, what we're seeing now is that the Cameron government in, in the UK is certainly of the Michael Hesseltine right. uh, ill. Right. In that it is just saying, look, you know, we don't really want to. Hong Kong isn't our problem anymore. We're not even the colonial masters there anymore. This is a sore point which just always causes friction with mainland. Why are we, you know, let's not stick our oar in. Let's just keep out of it um, because, you know, at the end of the day, we have no benefit from, you know, just taking the protest aside, even if that may be the morally correct thing to do, um, because we just want to sell more Bentleys or more Burberry or whatever we want to do in mainland China. Uh, I think, you know, what they these people never seem to really understand is that foreign foreigners never make any money, never make any real money in China. It's been that way for the last 300 years. Um, you just end up, you know, handing over your IP or doing whatever else, um, but not really ever making any money. So I think that there's this illusion all the time of it's a huge market and we can make so much money. Uh, and, a, you know, the crumb from a panda is still better than a than nothing but uh, i think it's misguided a lot of the time and at the same time you know there's got to be a point where you know one of the reasons why so many people in this country are so dissatisfied with the government and not just the current government but with all of the political parties is a feeling that the the leaders the politicians just are doing whatever they think is best for powerful economic interests uh, the british equivalent of the tycoons in hong kong rather than actually uh, doing what is right or doing something or having a moral stand on anything, even if it maybe is not the easiest thing to do. Uh, and I think that after a while, that just makes you feel like, how can you want to vote for these people? How can you be inspired by them when they seem to be completely morally bankrupt? Um, so, yeah. So you, you, you're talking about neoliberal kind of in the government. 
either. Well, not just neoliberalism. Yeah. We're seeing it in all the parties. You know, the Labour Party, which is supposed to be, you know, more left wing in, right. in the UK, hasn't said a word really about Hong Kong. Um, because, you know, they know that they might be in power in May and that they don't want to get on the wrong side of China. Hmm. Um, you know, and that's really where it's at. But it's very depressing because as somebody who sort of feels that, well, maybe we should think about what is morally right over just pure economics all the time. Um, you know, it means that there's nobody there who's sort of standing up or saying something that's worthwhile. But you had good reaction in, in Prague when you showed the film. Well, we're showing yeah, the film yeah. in Prague on uh, Saturday, oh, so sorry. Oh, yeah. it's coming up. Yeah. I mean, certainly there's an interest there. Um, they're showing it across 13 different towns in Czech Republic. I think uh, wow. you know, Eastern Europe has had the experience of communism and not that long ago, so they're a bit more uh, in tuned or interested in these things, whereas, um, I don't know, Britain, less so. But, I mean, we've had a lot of good response in the U.S. and in Canada, Um and now increasingly in Taiwan as well. So, Oh, good. Well, on that happy note, uh, thank you very much. And I'll post this online and everybody can listen to it. Thank okay, you. great. Okay, thank you touch. very much. Have a good trip. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye.